Good morning and welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, my name is Marian Tupi and I'm a policy analyst at the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity here at Cato. And I'm also the editor of humanprogress.org, which is an online resource for journalists, students and scholars and anyone interested in data about the state of the world. In spite of what we often read in the press or see on TV, evidence from academic institutions and international organizations shows dramatic improvements in human well-being. These improvements are especially striking in the developing world. Some human development indicators have been improving, uh, no matter how incrementally, uh, for hundreds, sometimes thousands of years. But the real break with our Hobbesian past came with the onset of the Industrial Revolution some 200 years ago. For most people today, life is no longer solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Instead, most of us live longer, healthier, safer, and more comfortable lives than our ancestors could have imagined. None of this means that the world is a perfect place or that we can be complacent about the problems that still remain. However, a realistic understanding of the world in which we live must take into account historically unprecedented positive developments brought about by trade, mechanization, science, innovation, the spread of information, and more accountable government. The topic of our discussion today is related to the subject of the improving state of the world. The speakers will discuss reasons, be they psychological, physiological, or cultural, for relatively widespread pessimism in this age of growing abundance. While we may not come up with an exhaustive list of reasons for pessimism, we hope to flush out as many obstacles to a more realistic understanding of the world around us as possible. Before I introduce our first speaker, please join me in viewing a short 90-second promotional video about human progress that was created especially for this occasion by our talented audiovisual department. Everything we know, everything we love, is changing. Our home, planet Earth, and humanity face something more incredible than anything the ancient Mayans predicted. Something even Nostradamus could not foresee. Nothing can turn back the tide. Life as we know it is ending. Our world is... Getting better. Poverty rates are in decline, crime rates are falling, and fewer people are dying of cancer. Science and innovation are transforming our lives, elevating human well-being to levels that would be unimaginable to our ancestors. Across the globe, people are living longer, making more money, and working less. Animal cruelty is decreasing, and funny cat videos are more available than ever. But bad news makes good headlines, so it can be easy to lose sight of the progress we've made. That's why we created humanprogress.org, where you can find an overwhelming amount of evidence through credible third-party data showing that conditions for everyone have vastly improved and continue to do so. You can find the latest data on economic, political, and social developments, as well as the tools to create shareable charts and maps and the ability to make cross-country comparisons. 
So the next time someone says the world is coming to an end, tell them to visit humanprogress.org. At the risk of sounding cliche, our first uh, speaker truly needs no introduction. Uh, Steven Pinker is one of America's best known and most widely read academics. He is the Johnstone Family Professor at the Department of Psychology at Harvard University, where he conducts research on language and cognition. He writes for publications such as the New York Times, Time, and the New Republic, and is the author of 10 books, including The Language Instinct, How the Mind Works, The Blank Slate, The Stuff of Thought, The Better Angels of Our Nature, and most recently, The, the Sense of Style, Thinking Person's Guide to Writing in 21st Century. He is also a member of the Advisory Board of Human Progress and a genuinely nice guy <laughs> who has helped us and encouraged us for a number of years. With that, please help me welcome Steven Pinker. Thank you, Marian. <clears throat> so why are people so pessimistic about the present? Uh, I, my own interest in this topic began uh, when I started to become aware of some data on the history of violence and uh, compared them with the conventional wisdom. I did an internet survey, which I asked people, I gave people binary choices of uh, two different periods in history, and I simply asked them to estimate which one was more violent and by uh, how much. So tribal warfare or 20th century warfare, that is, which had a higher rate of death per capita, medieval England or modern England, war in the 1950s or war in the 2000s, America in the 1970s or America in the 2000s. Uh, and here are the results. The, on this graph, um, bars uh, stretching to the right indicate estimates that the present was more lethal and the numbers... I don't know if this shows up. No, it doesn't. Okay. The uh, numbers refer to the ratio of rates of violence in the more recent period compared to the um, more um, uh, ancient period. And you can see that people estimate that the present is more violent than the past by anywhere from 1.5 to 1 to uh, 5 to 1. Uh, these are the actual data in each case. And in uh, every case, uh, the sign of people's estimate is in the wrong direction, namely the past was more violent, and by a lot. In some cases, the past was uh, 40 times more violent than the present. Uh, this is what led to my book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has uh, Declined. But I, uh, it was not the end of my encounters with pessimism. Uh, after writing a book on war, genocide, rape, uh, torture, sadism, and so on, I thought I would take on some uh, controversial issues, uh, <laughs> namely split infinitives, dangling participles, prepositions at the end of sentences, things that really get people worked up. And there, too, I found widespread pessimism. If uh, when I uh, just told people what I was, that I was writing a book on uh, why writing is so bad and uh, how we might improve it, the universal reaction is that writing is getting worse, uh, that the language is degenerating, and uh, there are a number of popular explanations for this alleged fact. Uh, Google is making us stupid. Uh, the digital age has produced the dumbest generation. 
Uh, Twitter is forcing us to write and think in 140 characters. Uh, but then I asked people to stop and think. If this was really true, then uh, things must have, the dumbest generation theory implies that it must have been better before the digital age, say in the 1980s. And those of you who are old enough remember the 1980s. That was the age in which, as we all remember, teenagers spoke in articulate paragraphs, <laughs> uh, bureaucrats wrote in plain English, uh, every academic article was a masterpiece in the art of the essay. Uh, or was it the 1970s? Uh, but the fact is, if you go back to the history of commentary on the state of the language, you find that people were pessimistic in every era. 1961, recent graduates, including those with university degrees, seem to have no mastery of the language at all. Well, maybe you have to go back to the era before uh, radio and television, such as 1917. From every college in the country goes up the cry, our freshmen can't spell, can't punctuate. Every high school is in disrepair because its pupils are so ignorant of the merest rudiments. Well, maybe you have to go back to the uh, age of the European Enlightenment, 1785. Our language is degenerating very fast. I begin to fear that it will be impossible to check it. And then there are the ancient grammar police. Oh, for crying out loud, you never end a sentence with a little birdie. <laughs> So uh, above and beyond the psychology of violence and the psychology of uh, language and writing, there, uh, an interesting question for a psychologist such as myself is, uh, why, what is the psychology of pessimism? Why are people always convinced that, uh, that the world is going downhill? Uh, I'm going to suggest this morning that it's a combination of uh, a number of uh, elements of human psychology in particular, a number of emotional biases and cognitive biases interacting with the nature of news. So let's start with the psychology. There are a number of emotional biases toward pessimism that have been well documented by psychologists, uh, <clears throat> often summarized by the slogan, bad is stronger than good. This is the title of a review article by Roy Baumeister that came out a, a dozen years ago, in which he reviewed a wide variety of kinds of evidence that people are more sensitive to bad things than to good things. Losses are felt more keenly than gains. <clears throat> if you lose $10, that makes you feel a lot worse than uh, the, uh, uh, the amount uh, by which you feel better if you gain $10. <clears throat> or as Jimmy Connors once put it, I hate to lose more than I like to win. Bad events leave longer traces than good ones in terms of uh, mood and memory. Criticism hurts more than uh, praise encourages. Uh, this is just the tip of an iceberg of uh, psychological phenomena in which the bad outweighs the good. Bad information is uh, processed, whoops, sorry, I got, got that cut off at the bottom of the slide, is uh, processed uh, more attentively than uh, good information. Well, why is bad stronger than good? Um, I suspect that, the, that there is a deep and profound reason, uh, namely the second law of thermodynamics. That is, that there are uh, more ways in which uh, the state of the world can be disordered than ordered, almost by uh, definition, or in the more vernacular version, uh, shit happens. Uh, there are a lot more ways in which something can go wrong than something can go right. So here's a question. This was uh, originally posed to me by uh, my uh, late colleague uh, Amos Tversky when I was at Stanford. Uh, how many, uh, just imagine, this is a little thought experiment. As you leave this conference, how many really good things could happen to you today? Just let your imagination run wild, the best things that you could imagine. Okay? Now, how many really bad things could happen to you today? 
Imagine all the terrible things that could happen. And I think you'll agree that there's the, the second list is longer than the first one. And not surprisingly, a, a, um, this probably has left a mark on our psychology. And uh, Tversky uh, also posed the, the uh, following two thought experiments. How much better could you feel than you're feeling right now? Again, try to imagine how much happier you could be. Now, how much worse could you feel than you're feeling right now? Uh, I, I, you don't even have to do the experiment. <laughs> There's also uh, an asymmetry of uh, payoffs in terms of the um, reaction to the possibility of good and bad things. Uh, what is the average cost of overreacting to a threat? Well, it's, uh, it's not zero, and we all can document cases where we have paid in foregone opportunities or in other resources for reacting to a threat that never happens. But what's the cost of underreacting to a threat, such as a, an accident, a predator, uh, a disease, and so on? There's a hypothesis, not so easy to prove, but I think quite plausible, and I bet it could be uh, proven, that for most of human evolutionary history, the fitness cost of underreaction is, was much greater than the fitness cost of overreaction. That is, the typical threat in the environment in which our brains evolved uh, was probably greater than it is today, now that we have um, exerted technological mastery over so much of our local uh, environment. The implication would be that our current psychology is tuned, uh, is tuned to a world uh, that was more dangerous than the world that we're in today, and that therefore our sense of risk and fear and anxiety is uh, not optimally tuned to the objective risks that we face today. Now, a second, uh, this is, uh, could be multiplied by a second source of bias, uh, sometimes called the illusion of the good old days. Um, uh, people always pine for a uh, golden age. They're nostalgic about uh, an era in which life was uh, simpler, more predictable. And Roger Ibeck has argued that this is because people confuse change in changes in themselves with changes in the times. Now, as we get older, there are just certain things that inevitably uh, happen to us. We take on more responsibilities, so we have a greater cognitive burden. We become more vigilant about uh, threats, especially as we uh, become parents. I mean, one of, the, one of the experiences of a new parent is they never realized how much the world is filled with threats and dangers. You know, an empty paint bucket could be a uh, lethal to a toddler. Uh, we become more sensitive to more kinds of errors. This is certainly true in language. As you become uh, more literate, as you consume more printed text, you become more sensitive to some of the fine uh, points of punctuation and spelling and grammar that you may not have noticed when you had consumed less text, and so you're more likely to notice it, notice errors in uh, text that you process in the future. And at the same time, we see our own capabilities uh, decline. We become stupider as we get older. Uh, in terms of just sheer ability to process information. Uh, and there is a strong tendency to misattribute many of these changes in ourselves to changes in the world. And the number of experimental manipulations that bear this out, if you have people uh, um, try to make some change in their lives, say to eat less fat, then they are convinced that there are more and more ads for fatty foods. If you ask them to reduce carbohydrates, they're convinced that the number of ads for high-carb foods goes up. Uh, and uh, 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 so it's an, an experimental manipulation as well as a uh, post hoc observation. 
Now, uh, it would be a little hypocritical if I said, you know, more and more today, people pine for the good old days. But, uh, uh, but there's reason to think that this is not a recent phenomenon, that the good old days illusion is itself nothing new. In 1777, David Hume noted that the humor of blaming the present and admiring the past is strongly rooted in human nature. Uh, and I think another one of the causes, on top of the emotional biases that I have uh, reviewed, was suggested a century earlier by Thomas Hobbes, who wrote, pithily, competition of praise inclineth to a reverence of antiquity, for men contend with the living, not with the dead. That is, criticizing the present is a way of criticizing your rivals. Uh, and that ties into the third emotional bias, which is the psychology of moralization. People compete for moral authority. Who is more noble? And critics are seen as moral, uh, more morally engaged than apologists, or people who are simply apathetic, particularly regarding contested ideas and institutions in your local social community. And uh, people identify with moral tribes. What you think is uh, uh, worthy of moralization identifies which group you affiliate with. And so the factual question, is the world getting better or worse, is, has become a referendum on modernity. That is, on the uh, gradual erosion over the centuries of family, tribe, tradition, and religion and uh, giving way to the forces of individualism, cosmopolitanism, reason, and science. So your factual belief on whether the world is getting better or worse is a uh, litmus test for your moral beliefs on what kinds of institutions and ideas make us better off uh, and worse off. Those are three emotional biases. I think we also have uh, cognitive biases that, uh, that uh, incline us toward pessimism. Foremost among them, the availability heuristic, a uh, feature of our psychology of probability estimation documented by Amos Tversky in collaboration with Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winning economist and author of, the, of uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, the bestseller. Kahneman and Tversky argued uh, 40 years ago that people, the, the way the one of the ways the human brain estimates probability is by the rule of thumb that the more easily you can recall an example of something, the more probable you estimate it to be. With the uh, result that anything that makes an incident more memorable will make it seem more probable. And here is a, uh, and that means that any factor of human memory, the quirks of the brain's ability to retain information, will bleed over to our estimate of uh, risk and, and likelihood. So events that are more recent will be judged to come from more probable categories. Things that are easy to imagine, uh, form a picture in the mind's eye, and uh, things that are easier to retrieve. And they give a, a simple example. Uh, <clears throat> which are more common, words that begin with the letter R or words that have R in the third uh, position? Now, uh, people will say there are, it's more likely that a word will begin than, with R than to have R in the third uh, position. They looked it up. It's the other way around. Uh, but not surprisingly, we retrieve words by their onsets. We don't retrieve words by their uh, third position. So you can ask this of almost any, of any letter in the alphabet, and you'll get the same result. We just can't call words up to mind by any position than the first. And so we always judge words that begin with a particular letter to be more common than words that have a letter in any other position, just because of the quirks of human memory. Now, needless to say, 
uh, even though on average things that occur more often will be more memorable, uh, in any case where that fails to happen, our estimates of probability will be systematically uh, incorrect. Uh, or another way of putting it is that the cognitive psychology of human memory is not the same as the calculation of probability, which is more or less number of occurrences divided by number of opportunities in the long run. Uh, we see the availability heuristic in action uh, all the time. Uh, people are more fe fearful of uh, plane crashes, shark attacks, and terrorist bombings, especially if one just happened recently, compared to events like electrocutions, falls, and drownings, which are objectively far greater risks, but tend not to, to make uh, the uh, headlines. Then there's the Pauline Kael effect. Uh, in 1972, after the, most, uh, the, the biggest electoral landslide in American presidential history, uh, Pauline Kael, the movie critic of The New Yorker, said, I don't understand how uh, Nixon could have won the election. No one that I know voted for him. <laughs> now, I think all of these psychological biases interact with the nature of news to lead to an overall uh, uh, aura of pessimism. Uh, what is news? News is pretty much, by definition, things that happen. It's not things that don't happen. If something blows up, that's news. If something doesn't blow up, that's not news. If a high school gets shot up, that's news. If there's another high school that doesn't get shot up, you don't see a reporter uh, in front with a camera and a news truck saying there hasn't been a rampage shooting in front of this high school or the other thousands and thousands of high schools at which a rampage shooting has not taken place. So the news is inherently biased toward violent events because violent events are events and nonviolent uh, Nonviolence is just not an event. Uh, now, this is, I think, an even greater distorter than the commonly repeated criticism of uh, news programming policy, if it bleeds, it leads. Although, of course, that is uh, uh, a policy to be made aware of and to criticize. Uh, violence is entertaining. We uh, pay a reasonable amount of our disposable income to watch things like Shakespearean tragedies and um, uh, movies in which people get shot and blown up. Um, uh, it's not surprising that when it comes to attracting eyeballs to news sites, the same kind of uh, mayhem that we pay money to see fictionalized, we also pay money to see uh, in fact. Uh, also, uh, I think this is multiplied by the fact that the world now has uh, 1.75 billion smartphones increasing exponentially, which means that the world now has 1.75 billion news reporters. Uh, so violent and gory events that would have uh, been trees falling in the forest with no one to hear them uh, uh, as recently as a decade ago now can be filmed in real time and uploaded to the World Wide Web. And all of these traits of the news media stoke the availability heuristic. That is, they give us image, uh, imaginable, vivid, memorable, recent events to tilt our probability estimates. Uh, final point is that there, this can in turn give rise to a perverse violence news codependency in which people will commit acts of violence precisely because they anticipate how it will be covered in the news. Um, there are uh, at least two categories of violence which are pretty much creations of the news media. Uh, terrorism. Terrorism is a technology for 
um, extracting the maximum amount of publicity for the smallest amount of violence. By any count, terrorism accounts for a trivial proportion of the world's deaths by violence, to say nothing of deaths from all causes put together. Uh, the most uh, damaging terrorist event in history was 9-11, which killed fewer than 3,000 people. Um, I mean, that's kind of in the noise when it comes to uh, statistics on homicide or uh, civil wars. And rampage killings. Uh, that's another uh, event which probably would not uh, occur or not nearly as much if it weren't for the wall-to-wall uh, -wall news coverage. The way Adam Lankford put it in his book, The, um, uh, the Myth of Martyrdom, uh, here's a, a thought experiment. Let's say you wanted to be famous. Uh, you really wanted to obtain worldwide fame in, say, in some period of time, let's say in the next year or the next you know, week or the next month, what could you do that would guarantee that you would become famous? Well, it'd be nice to, you know, come up with a cure of a disease, but, you know, how many of us can do that? Uh, even circulating a, uh, an internet meme, you know, a cat video, there are lots of people who are uploading cat videos, very few of them go viral. But he noted that there is one guaranteed way in which any person in this room could be famous, and that is kill a lot of innocent people. Now, because of that uh, feature of life, uh, a market is created for people for whom notoriety is more important than anything else, including uh, life itself. And uh, that feeds a kind of violence that probably would, not, would barely exist if it weren't for the nature of news. So in sum, I, uh, there's many reasons to think that people tend to be more pessimistic about the world than the evidence warrants. Um, I've suggested that this can be attributed to three emotional biases baked into our psychology, that uh, bad dominates good, the illusion of the good old days, namely we confuse decline in ourselves with decline in the times, and moralistic competition, together with one cognitive bias, the availability heuristic, and that uh, all of these biases uh, interact with the nature of news, news by definition, concentrates on events rather than non-events, violence is entertaining, and uh, the world has seen a multiplication of the number of news reporters. Uh, all of them feed the three emotional negativity biases and the availability heuristic. Thanks very much. Thank you, Steve. Um, our next speaker is Brink Lindsay. Uh, Brink has uh, written on a wide range of uh, topics, including trade policy, globalization, American social and cultural history, and the nature of human capital. His current research focuses on economic growth and the policy barriers that impede it. In his years with Cato, Lindsay has served as director of regulatory studies, founder and director of the Center for Trade Policy Analysis, and currently as vice president for research. He was the senior editor of Regulation Magazine, and he created and was the original editor of Cato Unbound. An accomplished writer, uh, Lindsay has written several books, including Human Capitalism, How Economic Growth Has Made Us Smarter and More Unequal, The Age of Abundance, How Prosperity Transformed America's Politics and Culture, Against the Dead Hand, The Uncertain Struggle for Global Capitalism, and with Daniel Eikenson, another one of our colleagues, Anti-dumping exposed the devilish details of unfair trade law. Please help me welcome Brink Lindsay. Uh, 
thank you, Marion. It's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, this is a topic that I've uh, noodled over myself for some time, having written a book about how uh, uh, the world, or in particular American society, is getting better, uh, uh, getting better at precisely the time that uh, both the left and the right have different conceptions of why uh, everything is going to hell. Um, so. Uh, my sense of this is that uh, this phenomenon of pessimism is, is fairly massively overdetermined. Uh, that is, it, we can identify various factors that, uh, uh, that uh, <clears throat> contribute to this, but my sense is that, uh, is that it's really hard to sort out which one is the dominant one. They all play a role, uh, and, uh, and so I think we can say uh, of, of progress uh, what Joseph Schumpeter said of capitalism, he said, capitalism stands its trial before judges who have the sentence of death in their pockets. They are going to pass it, whatever the defense they may hear. The only success victorious defense can possibly produce is a change in the indictment. So we're very unlikely to completely uproot uh, pessimism, but uh, maybe the best we can do is change the reasons why people are pessimistic. Um, so uh, uh, Steve Pinker has, has already gone through uh, the uh, <clears throat> psychological uh, and uh, bases for, uh, for this phenomenon. Uh, I just want to add a, a few thoughts along those lines. Um, the, uh, there is, uh, in addition, a, a, an ideological bias, uh, which, uh, which may very well uh, lead people who are generally hostile or critical uh, of capitalism uh, to uh, underestimate how well things are going in the absence of huge centralized pushes to overwhelm poverty. The idea that poverty and, uh, may be declining uh, kind of all by itself without some centralized uh, global crusade uh, is, is not a message that, uh, that some people uh, want to hear because of their ideological orientation. Uh, so I'm sure that's going on, uh, but my sense is uh, that uh, Every mass belief system, every ideological orientation uh, <clears throat> has its own sort of domain of pessimism. So uh, it would be interesting to see uh, surveys, to see uh, a correlation between uh, ideological orientation and what you happen to be pessimistic about. Uh, so one might imagine uh, that uh, progressives would be more pessimistic about economic developments in the United States over the past 30 years or so, basically since Ronald Reagan was elected. Uh, they would be very... Uh, <clears throat> invested in the idea that, uh, that things have been going downhill uh, ever since uh, the kind of New Deal economic order was, was toppled. Um, likewise, you might expect to see conservatives uh, be especially pessimistic about cultural developments, uh, that, uh, that ever since the fall of man in the 1960s, uh, things have been uh, getting progressively worse and worse. But it would be very interesting to see uh, data along those lines. I, I'm not familiar with them. Um, the, the point about uh, news uh, is certainly correct. Uh, it's, and just to elaborate a bit, uh, this event versus non-event uh, biases us towards spectacular violent events versus peaceful uh, non-events. But also uh, because uh, news focuses on events, on dramatic events, uh, it's very bad at covering slow paint-drying incremental progress. Uh, so stories that unfold over years or decades or centuries are ones that are going to be uh, underrepresented in the media. Uh, and so I, I'm sure that plays a role. Uh, but even so, uh, I just read recently an article by Stephen Johnson, who has a new book out uh, 
on uh, a similar kind of topic called Future Perfect, uh, <clears throat> where he was saying that, uh, pointing out that the media don't do uh, long-term incremental progress stories very well. But even when they do, the public tends to blank out. So he mentions that if there's one of these progress stories that the media has been pretty good at over the last 20 years, there's been a lot of stories about dramatic uh, decreases in the crime rate over time. Uh, that does get a lot of media attention. And yet, uh, public opinion polls show uh, large majorities of people thinking that crime is getting worse uh, every year. Um, so that suggests deeper uh, <coughs> forces at play. Um, all of the, uh, the kind of personal, individual, uh, psychological biases that uh, Steve Pinker mentioned are, are certainly in play. Uh, just to elaborate a bit on the good old days uh, bias, uh, it seems plausible uh, that people will tend to be, have the rosiest view uh, <coughs> of the world when they were uh, late adolescents, young adults, when they were at the very height of, of life's possibilities, that they had developed capacities which opened possibilities, but they hadn't made many choices yet, so all of life lay before, lies before you. Uh, and uh, that's a wonderful, optimistic feeling, whereas the farther you go down, down in life, the more choices you make, the more narrow you get, the more paths not taken. Um, and life feels more confined. Uh, so uh, in addition to, of course, the, uh, the grim uh, physical degradation of aging. Um, so uh, it, uh, this good old days bias, I think, does absolutely uh, go on. And the confusion between what's going on inside of you uh, or how you're feeling about the world uh, versus how the world itself is, uh, is uh, proceeding uh, certainly is, uh, is a factor here. Um, one thing that, uh, that wasn't mentioned is not an individual bias, but a cultural bias, uh, or let's call it just cultural inertia. Uh, and this is the fact that uh, human beings have been around a good long time, and uh, progress, uh, in the sense we're talking about, is brand spanking new. Uh, so progress, as Mary mentioned, uh, <coughs> of the type we're talking about, uh, really started uh, in uh, the Industrial Revolution a couple of hundred years ago. Uh, so for even people uh, in uh, England and in the North Atlantic world uh, who have been participating in this from the beginning, uh, we're talking about a handful of generations compared to 100,000 years of human experience in which uh, subsistence uh, was the norm um, and no progress in uh, human well-being uh, was the norm uh, and indeed was the iron rule. Uh, so... Uh, all of our cultural norms, all of our uh, values, habits, expectations have been adapted to a world uh, in which uh, things don't get better. You have good times, but those are then followed by bad times. You have fat years and lean years. Uh, but uh, in, uh, in such a world, a Malthusian world, uh, a vision of time as cyclical seems to make a lot more sense than a vision of time that's an arrow uh, going upwards. Uh, so uh, it's, I think, deeply entrenched in our, in our <clears throat> cultural memes uh, that what goes up must come down. Uh, pride cometh before a fall. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. Uh, that, uh, <clears throat> that, uh, because that's the way it's always been. Uh, and so uh, for, uh, for us in the West, 
just a handful of, of generations to, to live in a different uh, style of life in the rest of the world, a generation or two. So really no surprise that uh, norms uh, and attitudes that were well adapted to the world uh, uh, that humans occupied uh, for hundreds, thousands of generations, uh, uh, that those uh, uh, <clears throat> cultural forces have not abated uh, in just such a quick, quick time. Okay, so, so far, uh, all of this has been basically, uh, why are we so smart and they so stupid? Uh, why are we, uh, uh, why can we be clear-sighted optimists and why is the rest of the world uh, sort of afflicted with this benighted pessimism? Uh, so let me turn it around and see if there's a case for pessimism. Uh, what, what, uh, what can allow the pessimists to say uh, that they're the ones who know the story and that we're fooling ourselves? Uh, well, <clears throat> Uh, one thing is uh, the uh, interesting, slightly disturbing fact uh, that uh, happy, successful people uh, tend to be self-deceptive people. Uh, that is, uh, that uh, people who overestimate their abilities, underestimate uh, the bad things that have happened to them in life uh, or the challenges that they're currently facing, uh, tend to be happier, more confident, more successful in life than people who have a more accurate self-conception. Uh, indeed, uh, the uh, accurate self-conception is often uh, uh, well correlated with clinical depression. Um, <laughs> so the pessimists then uh, can tell themselves, uh, we know what the score is. Uh, these happy, optimistic, successful people uh, are all fooling themselves, and uh, to a certain extent, they're correct. Um, uh, beyond that, uh, I think there is a slam dunk uh, case for pessimism. Um, I could uh, quote uh, Keynes's famous line about the long run, but I think it would be bad form to quote Keynes in the Hayek Auditorium. So, uh, <laughs> so I'll quote Jim Morrison instead: "No one here gets out alive." Uh, that so. Everybody in this room, we're all going to die. Everybody we love and know is going to die. All our children are going to die. Uh, a thousand years from now, nobody is going to remember anything about any of us. Maybe Steve. None of the rest of us. <laughs> a billion or two years out from now, the uh, life on Earth will become impossible because of what's going on with the sun. Billions and billions of years past that, uh, matter is no longer uh, possible as the un universe continues to expand. Uh, and so... Uh, wait around long enough, and the pessimists are always right. Um, so, uh, but what does one do with this, this kind of pessimism? It's, uh, it, it is a form of wisdom uh, to know that, uh, uh, that, all, that uh, uh, all that's glorious is fleeting, um, but uh, if one dwells on it, it just leads to resignation and fatalism and despair. Uh, so uh, wisdom is a funny thing. Um, uh, haste makes waste. That's wisdom. Uh, so is he who hesitates is lost. Um, so there's a meta-wisdom to know which wisdom to use at the right time. Um, and so uh, this sort of <clears throat> world-weary sense uh, that uh, we're all dust in the wind uh, is a powerful source of wisdom as a consolation for the inevitable losses uh, that we uh, suffer over, uh, over the course of our lives, uh, but makes for uh, a very bad motivational speaker. Um, so... Uh, uh, if we can put uh, <clears throat> that kind of, so part of, I think, the problem that we're facing is 
uh, is that uh, is that pessimism seems more intellectually serious, seems deeper. My colleague uh, Jason Kuznicki recently uh, wrote a blog post in response to some tweets from Human Progress, and the title of the blog post is "Why is optimism so gauche?" And it <clears throat> it does seem gauche, and it's because there's this deep existential despair lurking down under the surface that we're all going to die. And if you face up to that, then wow, that's, that's heavy. Uh, and optimism seems kind of silly and superficial by comparison. Uh, so there, I think there is a sense in which uh, the pessimists have a point, but it's a point uh, that, uh, that has its place and out of its place uh, leads to a, a, a misapprehension of what's going on in the world around us. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Brink. Our last speaker is Charles Kenny, who is a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development. Uh, his current work covers uh, topics including the uh, post-2015 uh, development agenda, the role of technology in quality of life uh, improvements, and uh, governance and anti-corruption. He has published articles, chapters, and books on issues including uh, progress toward the Millennium Development Goals, uh, that we, um, uh, what we know about the causes of economic growth, the link between economic growth and broader development, the causes of improvements in global health, the link uh, between economic growth and happiness, the end of the uh, Malthusian trap, uh, the role of communication technologies in development, the digital divide, and corruption. He's the author of uh, uh, the book Getting Better, Why Global Development is Succeeding and How We Can Improve the World Even More. He's also contributing editor at uh, Foreign Policy Magazine and a regular contributor to Business Week Magazine. Charles, welcome. Well, first of all, thank you uh, very much for, for inviting me. I'm, I'm honored to be on this panel. Uh, uh, and you know, as the person who can speak with uh, the uh, uh, certainly the least uh, earned authority on the topic, um, I'll try and be brief, but also um, um, because, of course, uh, uh, much of, of what I was uh, thinking has been better said already. Um, but I'll, I'll try and be quick uh, and, and, and make sort of four points that I thought of before and, 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 and a fifth that uh, this fascinating discussion has, has, has led me to. The, the first four are, you know, one, pessimism is often right. Uh, two, optimism is boring. Uh, three, pessimism is godly. Uh, and, and fourth, pessimism is, is, is useful. Um, and the, the fifth one, uh, that, as I say, the sort of discussion led me to is, is that actually maybe progress creates pessimism. Um, so, just on, on pessimism is often right. I mean, uh, as, as, as Bruce uh, suggested, uh, for most of human history, pessimism would be spot on. Uh, uh, um, you know, there, there wasn't much progress, uh, and, and a lot of times, uh, uh, you know, the, the rise of Rome was followed by the decline and fall of Rome. This is the, the you know, this has been the sort of the standard model, um, and although. I happen to think they're probably unlikely. There are lots of, you know, good reasons to remain pessimistic about the future. I mean, you know, we still easily have the capacity through global thermonuclear war to wipe the planet uh, 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 clear of most life, as probably nearly all of ours. Um, you know, we maybe it's possible that, 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 that there'll be runaway climate change and we'll end up looking like Venus. Um, 
you know, we might get a massive new pandemic of uh, antibiotic-resistant uh, uh, disease. You know, there, there, there really are genuine things to, to be worried about in the future. And there really does remain a lot of suffering. Um, many people, if I may say, really are just bastards. Uh, and, you know, for all the, 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 you know, the better angels uh, seem to be winning at the moment, we're, we're never going to be purely angel, uh, uh, if you will, which is probably good because I'm not sure they can reproduce. But anyway, um, uh, uh, Secondly, optimism um, is is boring. Um, uh, the, the nature of news has, has been uh, touched on uh, uh, more than once. Um, you know, here's progress uh, uh, in in Tanzania. A kid wakes up uh, under a, a bed net, uh, gets some some sads of porridge for breakfast, uh, wanders down the paved road to uh, school, spends all day at school, comes back. Uh, his parents uh, come back uh, and they eat a happy meal together and they go to bed. Fascinating stuff. Um, so, you know, Tolstoy said happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Um, and it's not just that sort of progress is boring, frankly. Um, it's that many causes of progress are intensely boring. Um, the, the Fox show on institutional development is yet to get uh, past the producers. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, also... The, the, the focus on the new uh, uh, does have sort of perverse uh, uh, problems when it comes to the news. So take infectious disease, where we have seen massive global progress over the last 20 years. You know, and the, the number of people dying at measles has you know, gone down 80 90%. Uh, uh, we've completely uh, wiped out smallpox, so on and so forth. People are not dying of something old that they used to die of all the time throughout uh, large chunks of, of history. But everybody dies of something, right? So if they aren't dying of the old stuff, they must be dying of new stuff. Ah, rising death rates from new stuff. Um, uh, you know, for all, for all that it's true, I think only Slate would accept a pitch that went, good news, more people are dying of cancer. But, you know, honestly, it is, it is true because they're not dying of stuff that would have killed them earlier uh, 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 before. Um, and you can sort of see the, the, the hunger for the the new ways of dying thing uh, with, with the global response to Ebola, or at least the public response to Ebola. Um, there uh, was a, a poll recently by Gallup about what was the most urgent, uh, most important health problem facing the United, Sta the United States um, at the present time. Uh, top on 19% came affordable health care. Second on 18% uh, came access to health care. Third came Ebola. That's ahead of obesity, uh, ahead of cancer. Uh, it was, what, what's that, nine times the number who, who said diabetes, uh, nine times the number who said heart disease. Uh, you know, flu is down on 1%. Flu kills, what, 20,000 Americans in a bad year? Um, it's just, you know, overwhelmingly a bigger thing for us to worry about than Ebola, but there, there is Ebola up at the top. Um, pessimism is godly. Uh, this is the psychology of moralization point um, and, and, and what Bruce uh, uh, said on you know, Pride Before the Fall. I, I blame Parson Malthus for a lot. Uh, uh, he, one, actually, he's a bit of a boring writer. Um, but you know, beyond that, uh, uh, Malthusianism is, is, you know, really is just it, it's, it's a godsend uh, to, to, to the puritanical amongst us, right? Um, humans basically are corrupt. Um, and they're all going to live horrible, horrible lives. And the only way to pre prevent that um, is if, the, if these lust-ridden, unwashed masses stop having sex. 
then maybe there's a hope the future will be better. I mean, you know, ugh. Uh, 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 but, you know, there, there's a large part of the world that likes this kind of stuff, right? Um, uh, OK, four, uh, pessimism is, is, is useful. Look, crying crisis does get results. Um, because of all the reasons we've heard uh, that it's easier to communicate tragedy than success, it's easier to attract an audience with tragedy than with success. If, for example, you're a non-government organisation wanting to raise funds for something, you go for the crisis, you go to crisis. So uh, uh, to quote um, uh, a, a song that uh, was written for all of the best of intentions, it's hard, but when you are having fun, there's a world outside your window, and it's a world of dread and fear, where only wa- the only water flowing is the bitter sting of tears. And the Christmas bells that ring there are the clanging chimes of doom. Well, tonight, thank God it's them instead of you. And there won't be snow in Africa this Christmas time. The greatest gift they'll get this year is life. Oh, where nothing ever grows, no rain or rivers flow. Do they know it's Christmas time at all? This song is going to be number one in Britain this Christmas, I swear. It was number one 20 years ago when it was first released. It was number one, I think, about 10 years ago when it was re-released. This time, uh, it's a a charitable song, and and, all the uh, money from Bono's singing and from uh, uh, Boomtown Rats and all the rest of it coming together to sing the song, all the money is going to go to a relief and I think that's a you know, wonderful cause and in a way good on them um, but you know this becomes many people's image of Africa um, a, a place where they don't know it's Christmas um, a, a place where there's nothing ever grows and no rain or, or rivers flow um, you know which is a rather partial picture I have to say of Africa um, <laughs> And I think, you know, leads actually to uh, NGOs having a, 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 and aid agencies and so on having a long-term problem, which is they have been crying crisis again and again and again and again for 50 or 60 or 70 years. And at some point, people turn around and say, we gave you money to deal with that crisis. Why are you coming back? Are you incapable of dealing with the crisis? Um, and, you know, in, in some ways, they, they, they have a point. Um, but, you know, thereby uh, goes the rub. Um, Crisis is also, pessimism is also a reason for inaction. So if you do polls of people in the States, in Europe, pretty much anywhere, and you just ask them, do you have a moral responsibility to help people who are far worse off than you, you know, help the very poor? Um, uh, The overwhelming majority of people respond yes. Then you ask them a question like, do you think we should be giving more aid to the very poorest in the world? The overwhelming majority say no. Goodness gracious, no. Um, you try and probe the difference, and it's, uh, uh, you know, how do these two answers match up? It is, uh, the reasons would, would, would come no surprise to a Cato audience. People say, well, aid doesn't work. Um, and the reason they give for aid not working is that, you know, those people over there are corrupt and, uh, you know, can't spend the money very well. Or those people over here who are sending the money over here, there are corrupt and can't spend the money very well, or both. Um, but, it, you know, it's a story of we can't help. You know, yes, we have a moral obligation if we could help, but we can't. So that gets us off the moral obligation. Um, I happen to think that story's, you know, um, factually wrong, but, you know, it's an arguable statement, I admit. Uh, uh, I happen to believe it's, it's factually wrong, but it's, it's a convenient use of pessimism, if you will. Uh, it gets you off the hook for trying to make things uh, even better than they, uh, they, they're already becoming. Um, 
I, I won't belabor the point about it's a reason to uh, pessimism is a reason for spending on insurance. You know, if if you are in an industry uh, that had built up uh, the Soviet Union as a massive threat and it goes away, you need another massive threat. Um, and you know, yay, terrorism. Uh, uh, so, you know, but, but but this point has been made, so I won't um, uh, belabor it. Um, and you know, also the. the the risk-averse nature of, of humanity that, that, you know, a dollar increase in income doesn't make people as much happy, happier as a dollar decrease in income makes them miserable and so on. Um, so pessimism has, has that useful function again there. Um, but the, the fifth point, as I say, that, that only came to me listening to, to, to the fascinating comments before is, is that maybe progress is, is creating pessimism. One, progress is change. And uh, 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 as both uh, Professor Pinker and, 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 and uh, Professor Lindsay said, um, uh, old people don't like change. Um, and so, you know, that the world looks different isn't terribly comforting to them. And so that's a good reason for pessimism. But the other, the other part of this is that progress makes childhood a lot nicer. So actually looking back at your childhood and saying it's better than it is now, it's probably, in some ways, absolutely correct. Um, progress means that, you know, rather than sending kids out into the fields at the age of eight or into the factories at the end of age of 12, they're all sitting at home playing Pokemon. Um, and so I have, you know, I, I, I come away from this, this session, uh, uh, this, is, this is, you know, uh, news that I can use from this session. Um, I am going home to my kids this evening, and I swear they're going to be in bed by six. <laughs> They're going to have a miserable childhood. It is in the interests of the plant. Thank you very much. Actually, I'm thinking, is, is there anything that you guys want to uh, reflect on before we turn to Q&A, or shall we go straight to the Q&A? OK. So um, um, if, you have, if you have a question, please wait to be called on. Um, wait for the microphone so everybody in the room can uh, uh, hear you as well as our audience online. Um, uh, if you would please tell us who you are and uh, your affiliation and uh, kindly um, uh, end, the, uh, end your question with a question mark rather than a comment. <laughs> so we'll, we'll take uh, this gentleman right in front. Also tell us who you want, uh, who you're addressing Even the question sure. to. Even uh, sure. Are there any optimistic grounds for believing that pessimism will decrease? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> on the whole, probably not, but, in, but possibly in um, identified uh, um, spheres. Uh, people tend to be more optimistic about their personal life than about the world at large. Uh, I, I believe there are a number of opinion polls that show that uh, uh, most people think that their uh, local school is uh, doing pretty well, but that the nation's schools are doing badly. Um, most people believe that their own uh, are actually, you know, on the whole, people say that they're uh, happy. More, the more people who say they're happy than uh, unhappy. But at the same time, people will say that the world is getting worse. So certainly in um, personal lives, people are uh, already are more optimistic than when they, they opine on the state of the world. And when uh, you know, I found that when you remind people of uh, things that have been going right, they, they do appreciate it. If you remind them that um, you know, 
would you know, if you say, would you like your your dentistry with or without anesthetics, for example, uh, or uh, you know, did you ever, uh, you know, is, is it a good thing that we have flush toilets, uh, or you know, remember when they used to um, uh, you know, disembowel criminals, or uh, people people can be made aware of it at least locally for a while in circumscribed domains, but um, as uh, as Charles pointed out, there is. Uh, a certain utility to, to, to pessimism, and uh, probably some of the things that ought to make us optimistic today are the results of efforts of the pessimists in uh, previous decades and centuries. Hi, I'm Pat Michaels at the Center for the Study of Science at Cato. Uh, one of the news items that I think you didn't touch on, is it can be news when things happen that were, or things don't happen that were predicted to happen by people in authority, by scientists, for example. I'm a climate scientist by training, and I'm fully familiar with things that don't happen that we predict. Now, <clears throat> you may be familiar with some of these studies that are coming out now showing systematic changes in science where we're seeing increasing numbers of positive results being published. That, of course, is logically impossible. So that means we'll get an increase in the number of stories saying something that was predicted to happen or some drug that you were supposed to take or whatever doesn't work and it's not so bad. So is it possible we'll actually see an increase uh, in optimistic stories? So it, uh, I, let me see if I follow it. No, yeah. So there's certainly greater attention in science to replication failures. So that's a bit of that's bad news. Part of it, yeah. A lot of things that we thought were uh, established turned out not to be replicable, but that's not what you're referring to? Well, that's, that's part of it. It's part of a larger uh, increase in positive results and people act on positive results. And it turns out you really can't have that increase logically. So we're going to see more and more news stories, news stories that X didn't happen. And that's sort of the subset that you haven't touched on. Oh, I see. So, I mean, there, there, there could be story. I mean, that, that can go both ways because the stories on effectiveness of drugs often turn out to be premature because of the, um, well, what something called the file drawer problem right. in science, namely the, you publish the successes and you file away the, the failures. And so anything that's successful by chance, uh, by definition, one out of every 20 findings that are significant at the level of P is less than 0.05, uh, will get published and the uh, 19 out of 20 failures won't. I mean, on the, on the one hand, that could be, that's good in that a lot of the things that we thought were carcinogenic probably aren't, but it's also bad in that a lot of the things that we thought would uh, prevent cancer don't, you know, like, like antioxidants. I'm not sure if the uh, what, what I hope will be greater stringency in scientific practices, including attempts to deal with the file drawer problem and other kinds of biases that led to a uh, surfeit of positive findings in the past, uh, will be dealt with, with the, by the scientific community. I don't know if that'll lead to more positive or more negative results. It'll, one hopes it leads to more accurate results. I'm pessimistic about that. <laughs> Just uh, on this general point of uh, is there any possibility of the situation improving. Uh, notwithstanding the existence of these kind of global pessimistic biases that I think are very uh, robust and well entrenched, uh, specific progress on getting better understanding of the fact that there has been a lot of progress in material well-being around the world, uh, uh, particularly over the past generation, particularly in those parts of the world that 
we grew up thinking were sunk in hopeless misery. Uh, I am I am sure that that story is going to uh, gain broader currency and uh, and get uh, <clears throat> uh, there will be wider understanding of that fact over time, at least amongst educated elites. It, it's still a relatively new story. Uh, it's still very underreported. Uh, uh, Things like humanprogress.org are uh, pushing uh, in the direction of uh, against this ignorance and, and in favor of getting this story out. Uh, so that uh, on that particular front, uh, I do expect uh, that the efforts that Marion is making are not futile uh, and that in, and indeed uh, we can get um, uh, a, uh, a, a much broader understanding of, of, of uh, recent trends in economic development. More, more generally, can I add something? More, more generally, I'm uh, hopeful that that the recent trend toward uh, more quantitative analyses of the state of the world, uh, more Moneyball, more 538.com and Nate Silver, um, more uh, less of the uh, typical methodology of the journalistic, literary, intellectual establishment. Namely, an event happens. There's an anecdote. Uh, in the newspaper, then they ask a random person on the street what they think of the uh, incident that just happened, and then you have the editorialist telling people how they ought to feel about the thing that just happened. I mean, I'd, I'd like to think that that style of journalism will give way to something more like 538.com, uh, where um, uh, more where stories are put in the context of the best quantitative information available. That's not going to happen soon. Our universities don't. Uh, train people that way. Our uh, uh, journalistic and uh, intellectual establishment uh, is often quite hostile to the use of, uh, of data, but I think it's a, uh, an idea whose time has come, and I, uh, I think that, that that can only increase. And with it, uh, an estimate of the state of the world that in many ways will be more optimistic just because that's the way the facts are going. But ultimately what you want is just for it to be more accurate. If bad things happen, we should know that they're happening. But if good things happen, we should know that they're happening. Charles. So just briefly to say, of course, this is a, a, a problem largely of the West, um, that if you look at polls in the West and ask people, you know, are your kids going to be better off uh, than you are? Everybody says no. But if you look in China, not surprisingly, they say, yeah, probably things are heading in the right direction, that there comes a level or a speed of progress where it becomes just impossible to ignore. And so, you know, in some ways, we're already seeing less global pessimism than perhaps we were 20, 30 years ago, because just more of the world is improving faster than it ever has. And that's leading to, to, to some people being more optimistic. And of course, if we wanted to add to the optimism levels in the United States, how do you make a bunch of people in this country go, by golly, things are better really fast. You import them. Um, it is very difficult for somebody who was in Liberia yesterday and is moved to the United States today not to notice that things are a bit better for them. So, you know, migration may be the ultimate tool for uh, incre increasing optimism. But anyway. Very topical. Um, <laughs> Jason Kuznicki. Jason Kuznicki, Cato Institute. Uh, my question is, uh, how much do you think that pessimism is actually rooted in a virtue? Uh, by which I mean the virtue of compassion. We talk about problems to show that we care. 
when you talk about someone else's problems, it signals to that person that I am a nice person, that I'm a concerned person, that I care about you, that I have feelings that are that are are valid, that are you know worthy of expression, and that I am I'm reaching out to you and I'm trying to make you feel better. Uh, how much of how much of pessimism is rooted in compassion? Yeah. No, I think that is an insightful observation, and it's uh it's related to the the point that uh, pessimism tends to go along with with moralism. That uh, when you, um, you, in general, in any narrative, when there is a uh, a victim or an and an aggressor, they will have um, opposite narratives as to what happened, as to whether it was. Uh, the result of a prior history of provocation or came out of the blue, whether there was an understandable motive or it was sheer sadism. And then if you ask about the uh, outside that particular dyad of the, the, the sufferer and the perpetrator, uh, whose vantage point does the moralist take? The moralist takes the vantage point of the, uh, of the victim. Uh, and so there's something about moralization that it inherently goes with uh, empathy for those that are harmed. Uh, this, again, is a finding due to, to uh, Roy Baumeister. Uh, and a little bit perversely, the role, the uh, analyst, the scientist, uh, tends to have a viewpoint that's a little bit more aligned with the perpetrator, namely, what are the contextual factors that led to the harm, uh, what, are the, uh, you know, what, what caused it, uh, as opposed to who is to blame for it. And so you often have a repeated uh, dynamic that the, uh, the scientist, the analyst, uh, the objective commentator is seen as the, the apologist, the one who's making excuses, the one who says that to understand all is to forgive all, and the moralist, the compassionate person, takes the point of view of, of uh, the victim. I've been uh, harmed often by the deliberate action of someone else. Okay. Gentleman in the red shirt, uh, sweater. Hi, I'm Adam Thier with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Professor Pinker, when I was uh, doing some research recently on uh, techno panics and threat inflation in the field of internet policy and information technology policy, in trying to find explanations for why there is a lot of pessimism in debates about information technology, even though there's so much good news, I relied heavily on the list that you just uh, used and in, in came up with in your books and your past work. The one explanation I didn't see there that I discussed in my own work on this is the role of special interests. And I found this wonderful phrase in the field of sort of moral panic literature, uh, the term moral entrepreneur, and how there's so many groups now that have fed upon fear and created this sort of self-perpetuating set of individuals and institutions that we have uh, sort of a what some call a fear industrial complex or a panic industrial complex. And because of that self-perpetuating cycle, it seems like more money, more attention, more everything goes into fear, fear, fear. We saw this post 9-11. We've seen this in a lot of debates uh, on the internet. I've documented this in the fear over stranger danger on social networking, even though it really wasn't all that real. Tons of groups got tons of money to research that issue, go after it, even though we know there's nothing to it. So maybe you can comment on that and what we might do about that. Yeah. The, uh, <clears throat> the, uh, I don't know if, uh, if he was the originator, but, I, but the, the person that I associate with the, uh, the term moral entrepreneur is uh, John Mueller, who is, uh, I believe, affiliated with, with uh, Cato. Uh, and um, Mueller points out that a lot, uh, a surprising amount of social change can be traced to moral entrepreneurs whose ideas go viral, uh, and that uh, historians have under have uh, and, and economists uh, overestimate 
the role of what are sometimes called structural factors, you know, GDP, uh, uh, disease, inequality, uh, things that you can easily measure, compared to the spread of ideas, uh, which is at least so far has been harder to measure, although I think that can change with tools like uh, the Google Ngram Viewer and uh, the, the Google Digital Books Project and other forms of digital media where we might be able to trace the effect of the spread of ideas. Uh, I, I think the efforts of moral entrepreneurs can be both positive and negative. Many of the, the reforms that, uh, that we enjoy today, like the um, abolition of... Uh, of uh, torture as a form of routine punishment for, for crimes and misdemeanors, the end of slavery, uh, the uh, end of the glorification of war, can be traced to moral entrepreneurs whose ideas fortunately did go viral. But that also means that there are moral entrepreneurs who, with a combination of altruistic and self-serving motives, can whip people up into moral panics over things that we really should not be panicked over. And, uh, and you, you gave a number, number of examples. Um, you know, whether on average uh, moral entrepreneurship is a, a, a good thing or whether we need better filters for which moral entrepreneurs to pay attention to, it, it is hard to know. But I, I agree that it's a, an absolutely significant uh, phenomenon and one that, that's been understudied by historians. Okay, I'll try to be geographically representative in the back. Lady in the back. Yeah. Yes, you. I'm Paula Gordon, and I have, um, uh, I'm a writer and an educator, and I have a number of websites, one on drug abuse uh, prevention, and another on um, homeland security, another on public administration. Um, my question is about the role of morals, of, of, of values in all of this, and um, of what we're making of some of the evolving problems in the world. Uh, the violence in, in um, radical extremism that we're seeing, and also such things as the uh, evolution of the um, public health disaster that I think we're witnessing in a, a state like Colorado right now, where the uh, free use of uh, uh, a mild uh, to, to strong hallucinogen, depending upon how much THC is in it, uh, can uh, really dumb down a society. Um, what, where would Churchill be if he had not um, seen the um, the uh, real uh, significance of um, of Hitler? And uh, we have to. Uh, there has to be a, a certain amount of realism, I think, and and not only compassion brought to bear, but also uh, values. What, what okay. is it that we want to end up with, and how much are we concerned about the future of the nation and the future of the world? Thank you. Yeah, well, <clears throat> I think a number of us have, have uh, cautioned that the, the fact that there's undue pessimism doesn't mean that we should be uh, complacent and assume that uh, that there are are no threats. There are there are threats, and we benefited from the fact that our ancestors worried about them, and they're ones that we have to deal with today. Uh, what I would uh, suggest is simply that we ground our both our fears and our optimism in the the best data available, so that we allocate our budget of uh, worry and fear to the. Um, 
problems that uh, that that most deserve it, where they where there's something that we can do about it if we attended to it that would really alleviate the the harm or or uh, prevent the threat from becoming a reality. Um, so there the um, uh, the um, ability to discriminate um, moral panics where the emotion is completely out of proportion to the threat from uh, actual threats where action can make a difference is really what, what we should concentrate on. And that, that requires having the, the best data and the best uh, cost-benefit analyses possible. Thank you. I'm Joshua Schneer, unaffiliated writer. Uh, keeping in mind that most of the panel are agreeing that uh, pessimism can be a cause for vigilance and hypersensitivity, which is not necessarily a negative mindset and uh, could actually help in the event of crises or looking for best practices going forward. And keeping in mind Dr. Pinker's suggestion that negative reinforcement is felt much more profoundly than positive reinforcement, would, would anyone on, on the panel care to comment on the efficacy of either of these mindsets as a source of be uh, best practices and causes of action and whether there is any real difference in like, you know, the, 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 the frequency of positive outcomes stemming from these mindsets? I mean, uh, you know, I think in, in general, uh, we should be aware of the, both the cognitive and the emotional distorters of our, um, uh, our, our intuitive estimates of what best practices are. That if you, uh, even though uh, as a counterweight to ex excess optimism, all of us have been saying, well, yes, there really are threats and we should pay attention to them. Our own intuitions about what those threats are, are bound to be wrong. Uh, we are overly swayed by um, memorable, salient, vivid events as opposed to dull, boring data. Uh, we are overly swayed by charismatic moral entrepreneurs as opposed to uh, the, uh, the, the policy wonks. Um, so that while you know, obviously bad things can happen, we should do our best to prevent them from happening, uh, we should not rely on our own uh, emotional and intuitive reactions to them. That that would almost certainly be a recipe for misallocating uh, emotion and resources. Just and both of you, yeah. Bring first. Another ground for longer term optimism. I, I think the understanding of uh, of the pervasiveness of cognitive and emotional biases and how they color our thinking and how our intuitive reactions so often mislead us. Uh, this is an area where there's just been a, a ferment of intellectual activity, lots of, uh, of best-selling, uh, <clears throat> impactful uh, books uh, have been written in recent years. This is a, a meme that is in much broader circulation today than it was five or ten years ago. And so uh, I, I think there's uh, <clears throat> a limits to how far we can go, even as we recognize cognitive biases, we almost always recognize them in other people and assume that we are free of them. Uh, so the idea that we are all going to be able to march together out of the cave into the bright sunlight of pure reason seems unlikely, uh, but, uh, but perhaps uh, the kind of drift towards uh, more reliance on hard numbers and the kind of 538-ification uh, of, of journalism um, uh, goes along these lines of, of, of uh, taking advantage of our better understanding of how fallible our uh, our <clears throat> uh, cognitive function is, uh, and being more self-critical. Um, 
I think probably uh, uh, all of us would agree that um, uh, pessimism, you know, does have its place. Um, but uh, it, pessimism has its place, not fatalism, right? Um, that, that for something to be uh, a, a, a useful uh, tool or, or motivating force behind policy change, um, uh, you can't, it, it can't be fatalistic because then you just don't bother doing anything, right? It's going to happen. So it needs to be pessimism tinged with optimism, if you will, uh, uh, that in order for it to be useful. And I think this comes back also to the sort of the source of pessimism in, in compassion. That again, um, uh, you know, I, I take that point, but you, compa- you know, sort of useful compassion rather than just self-servingly feeling better because you care. Um, you know, useful compassion has to be based around the idea of, you know, not only is there suffering out there, I can darn well do something about it. Um, and in, in that sense, it has to be uh, an optimistic pessimism. Ugh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and then I think it can be terribly useful. Just for those who don't know, that you, you were referring to the Geldof uh, album that just came out, right? <laughs> yes, I <laughs> Yes, ma'am, right in front of you. I'm Mitzi Wertheim with Enable Postgraduate School. It seems to me life is a matter of compared to what? What's the context and what are your expectations? And if you look, and also, who are you asking this of, right? If if you're asking it of the rich folks, the 1%, their view of pessimism is very likely to be different than the bottom 25 or 40% in the United States. I think I'm trying to figure out why this is an important question. And and let me just say, I'm I'm working on, um, there's a new book out called War, The Rise of Military Internet Complexity. And I've been a part of that world for the last 35 years. Defense Department used to say, um, technology is our force multiplier. But then they started selling their technology, so it became available for everyone. And whatever our technology gives us, it's momentary. I mean, it gets out there, and they're turning it back on us. I think that's a real, when we, when we think of ourselves as the indispensable nation, we have a set of expectations that we'll always not meet. I don't know how you deal with that. And other countries are growing up and taking hopefully taking some responsibility for the well-being of the planet and make sure it doesn't, we don't destroy ourselves with climate change. Okay. Well, actually, I'll take the first bite at this apple and then uh, open it up to the rest of you because I think it uh, speaks to the sort of work that we are doing at Human Progress, uh, which is to say um, I always thought that if uh, people in general, be they in the United States or uh, elsewhere, feel that the world is going uh, to hell, they are much less likely to support the institutions, both economic and social, that underpin uh, the world in which we live. If you believe that capitalism and democracy um, have deleterious outcomes, you are much less likely to um, uh, defend them and to support them than if you believe that capitalism and democracy have resulted or are resulting in a massive improvement in uh, in a standard of living around the world. So in that sense, I think uh, uh, this is a very, very important subject, uh, which is why we have gathered this panel here together. But please, opine uh, on it. 
Just yeah. to say that also, if you think that the welfare state and regulation is behind the uh, improve, improvements in the quality of life, the same thing applies. <laughs> so, yeah, it's... Uh, the past 30 years or so have been the best time for Homo sapiens ever. That's a big story, <laughs> and it's massively underreported. Uh, and if uh, people understood that fact better, uh, they would be motivated to figure out why this is happening and to encourage those forces that are pushing it along and to, uh, and to uh, take aim at those things that are uh, blocking its path. Yes, sir. Um, yes, this gentleman here, right here. So I agree that we should be um, realistic about the world and how we see it and how it actually Who are is. you? Sorry. Uh, so Cameron, uh, no affiliation. Okay. Um, so we should be realistic about the world. But I want to make a brief argument for uh, pessimism. And pessimism, I'm not going to call pessimism. I'm going to call it dissatisfaction. And so the idea that we should be, um, you're, you're trying to create this utopian society, which is not one in which the world is perfect, but in which no one thinks it needs to change. And so the driver for change is pessimism, that we are not satisfied with how the world is now. That gives scientists a reason to say, oh, we should understand this better. We need to create better medical treatment. Um, that's the reason people change. If they're happy with how things are, there is no reason to change. So this idea of uh, pessimism being godliness is somewhat backwards. Um, and it's optimism that's godliness. It's optimism uh, for every religion to say, you know, we have all the answers. What we have to say is correct. Well, there's no reason to question our doctrine, to uh, say anything different about our dogmas, because optimistically, we have what, uh, what needs to be said. So uh, my question is, how is uh, the progress that you see, which is the reason for your optimism, going to continue if you um, discard pessimism? Can I, sorry. I, I, I think pessimism and optimism are statements about how you think the future is going to look not about the present. And so um, I, I, I don't think that optimists have to believe that the current world is perfect. I certainly, I consider myself an optimist. I also think the world could be a lot better. Making, making a statement about, you know, we're on a particular trajectory towards things being better is very different from saying, right, we can all go home. Um, and indeed, I think the fact that things are getting better is the best reason to think that things can continue to get better, which is the best reason to go out there and make sure they do. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just uh, amplify that. I don't think pessimism per se is the uh, the, the reason that we um, strive to make things better, uh, because if it uh, devolves into fatalism, it would say, well, why bother? Let's, nothing, nothing that we do will, uh, will help things. Let's just uh, enjoy ourselves in the present. That really, uh, and also, um, as Marion pointed out, your general assessment of whether of the, the sign of change, is it positive or negative, is going to strongly influence what you think ought to be done uh, going forward. Namely, do you want to tear down current institutions and, and go back to a, uh, a, the way the world was before those institutions were in place? Or do you want to try to purify and concentrate the ingredients of those institutions that have led to our current improvement? So there, it's tremendously consequential whether you think, on average, things have been getting better or worse in terms of what you think you ought to apply to make things better uh, in the future. 
Okay, we have time for one last question, and uh, uh, gentleman right in the back. Yes, sir. Thank you. I'm Bill Pegues from the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. You're on. Oh. Hold, it, hold it a little closer. Yeah, Bill Pegues from the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. I have a question about um, information markets and institutions. And Professor Pinker, if I recall from the Better Angels, which I read about a year ago and is dim in my memory now, you talked about the incredible decline in human violence since the late 19th century, partially as an interplay between the development of institutions and a market for ideas that change social norms, making violence less and less socially acceptable. I do a lot of work, my work is exclusively in low income and developing nations in trying to get energy projects going there. I have a question for you and for Charles Kenny about, is there something culturally special about the institutions that we have in the West that makes this more difficult to replicate in different cultures around the world? And to the extent that that is or is not the case, do you see the decrease in violence around the world occurring because of institutional developments or despite them? Uh, yeah, th there may be cultural differences that militate toward a more proactive uh, attitude about uh, uh, decreasing violence and in in increasing other measures of uh, human well-being. As Paul Collier has pointed out, there are you can see cultural differences in whether there's a, a um, uh, uh, harking back to an a golden age or the feeling that our best years are ahead of us and uh, that can motivate people into, a into action or not. Uh, one sees a difference between a culture of grievance where everything that is uh, wrong can be blamed on some malevolent party versus a culture of self-help, namely given the tools that we have was the best way to improve our lot. Uh, and so there may indeed be some kind of cultural uh, change that one that might have to proceed uh, taking positive steps. Um, in terms of institutions, <clears throat> and again, this speaks very di quite directly to the question of why does it matter. Um, yeah, I think that institutions have been um, enormously responsible for many of the declines of violence that we have uh, enjoyed, particularly a, uh, the, the rule of law and uh, some kind of predictable justice system and, and police force that, that uh, anarchic regions tend to be um, uh, violent <clears throat> and that the, the most effective violence reduction technique consists of institutions that, uh, that encourage civility, not necessarily because you have um, snipers on every roof that are going to um, uh, you know, take down any, any uh, perpetrator of violence, but just because if you, the more, there's a self-reinforcing spiral where the, more you, the less you fear your potential rivals and enemies, the less violent you have to be as a, a form of self-help protection. And so societies with some degree of a rule of law and institutions that, that uh, support civility and self-restraint uh, tend to become increasingly uh, entrenched. Uh, and other institutions uh, on a global scale have measurably decreased the, the rate of war and other forms of armed conflict. Um, peacekeepers, international associations uh, that, that uh, give countries a forum for airing their grievances they have a, a, a mixed track record. They don't always reduce conflict, but on average, they uh, they clearly do. 
So the build and and again, if you um, if you think that things are getting better, you're going to look to the institutions that have made it so and try to get them to do what they've been doing right even better. If you think things are getting worse, you're going to have a, an attitude that we need to tear down our institutions and either start over with something completely different, kind of 1960s romantic revolutionary fervor, uh, or um, the, that uh, we should just try to turn the clock back and uh, get back to uh, you know, return to the garden, get back to when things were better. Um. I, I do think that you are absolutely right that culture and institutions um, interact and, you know, uh, a, a program that comes in and says, right, here's a set of institutions and just plonks it down on top of uh, an existing culture is likely not to have the results you necessarily want. Um, uh, we kind of sort of tried it recently in Afghanistan and Iraq and I think in both cases, but that, that said, um, I don't think there's a reason for despair. Uh, uh, Francis Fukuyama, who I hugely admire, wrote a, a wonderful book called Trust, uh, which was about how you know, some cultures are sort of high trust and some cultures are low trust, and that has an impact on the nature of institutions. So um, uh, he said, that, you know, and I bet people in this audience know this book better than I do, but uh, you know, in, in, in the US is comparatively high trust, and actually that leads to less, less need for, for, for government. And France is a comparatively low trust uh, uh, culture, and, and, and that is one of the reasons it has a slightly bigger government. Well, you know, frankly, um, I, I love living in the United States, and I have no intention of moving. But if forced to live in France, I think I'd survive. It's not a bad place, you know. The cheese is pretty good, the wine is pretty So if, if those different cultures can still produce institutions and, you know, different mixes, and your choices between France or the United States, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. I don't think it's an overwhelming problem. Thank you all for coming and thanks to our panel.